Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg, currently worn by world number 28, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and world number 26, Martina Trevisan. See them at Diadora.com. He grew up in Oakland, California, and in 1990, got to four in the world. He was Andre Agassi's coach for six of his eight major titles, and he is now a broadcaster for ESPN, and he is a friend of the show. Brad Gilbert is today's guest, and this episode was recorded at the Malibu Racquet Club this past Saturday during a special practice and breakfast Q&A that I moderated. Please excuse the audio hiccups as I repeated questions that the microphone did not pick up. This was a tremendous episode that we are proud to bring to you. My question to you, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this, what's it like to be four in the world? Were there ever, was there ever a week where you could have been one? If something interesting, if there was ever a match that could have got you to two, was there ever a match that could have got you to three? What's it like to be four? Actually, there was never a moment where all of a sudden I, you know, really looked at it enough that were like, man, if I win this, I beat three, or you win this, you beat no, two. No, there wasn't. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there was. I, 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 but I never kind of played like that and worried about. I always felt like, you know, way too many players always worried about where they were going up or down. And at every level, I actually find that more people like when they're obsessed with going from three zero to three five. You know, you kind of get stuck thinking that that's all there is. It's just your your whole goal is to get better, is to have fun. And when you obsess over a number, you know, then you, that's all that you, there is to it. So I, 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 believe me, there's never a moment that I wish that I didn't do better. But I, there's never a time where I look back and say, geez, I'm pissed that I wasn't better. Who's got a question? Robert. Robert. On the men's side, top players, who do you think their mental game holds them back the most? You, you know what's funny about the mental side? You know, the, the mental side now is so different from when we were kids. It's funny, it's like when I was a kid, whoever even heard of a peanut allergy or gluten-free or anything, now everybody, you know, all of a sudden it's more about very cognizant of your mental side because you work with a mental coach or you have all these things. But obviously the one player who maybe has the most talent that, that you wish that maybe there were some things that he could do a little bit differently is curious. But then again, you know, maybe if he did have this, maybe it wouldn't work for him. You don't know. And I do find that a lot of times now that everybody feels like the difference between one and 100 is just mental. And I say, you know what, if it was really that simple, everybody would be great. There is a lot of difference between one and a hundred in skill set. You know, each, you know, increment you go up, there is skill set difference. But I do think that having kind of a good mental resolve and wherewithal, it kind of helps you be a little more resilient. My, my biggest problem in tennis is whenever there's any competition, inherently competitive, I don't play as well because I tend to want to play more conservatively and play them up and not as loose. So what do you do? And I've read Inner Tennis and Fox's book, and I understand you have art really is in psychology. Sometimes I find that that's the most important thing. I, you know, I fall apart. You know, it's funny. Is everyone thinks that I'm into psychology, 
but I've never been on anybody's couch in my life. And it just, a lot of them are just little things that I kind of learned and did myself. I, I feel like I just, you'd enjoy that, actually. You never, you want to give that a shot? Um, our coach at Pepperdine, Alan Fox. A little Fox, therapy? Yeah, used to get people on the couch. And I was like, no, I'm going to tell you a funny story. So I'm a little superstitious. And I had this little quirk when I was 5'2 up. I'd always tell myself I'm 5'2 down and try to push myself. So first week I'm coaching Andre. When he had a little bit of a wobble, I told him the same thing. Andre, just tell yourself you're 5'2 down. And he said, BG, he goes, you think I'm fucking stupid? That when when I'm 5'2 up, I tell myself 5'2 down, that's actually going to work. And I said, yeah, you know, just so you don't relax when you get ahead. Because a lot of us tend to relax. And then a big thing is in match play, when a lot of us are down, I always kind of tell myself... That when you're 5-2 down, you're not getting three games back in the next point. I do think about keeping it simple, but I even still to this day, like if I do play, I try to actually forget about the score, the, the set score, and I just think about the game score. And I, I would still, if I was reborn, tell myself if I'm 5-2 up, I'm 5-2 down, that there's more work to be done. That's kind of like my little simple way of doing it. What about practice? Like, I feel like everyone practices so bad. You know, people don't really want salient lessons. How do you try to get people better? I feel like good habits, whether or not you're a club player or a tournament player, they matter. If you're playing four or five, it's what you're working on to get ready for the tournament. What am I doing to get ready? What am I doing to help myself prepare? And if you can do anything a little bit to prepare and practice, it will translate to helping you. And, you know, I always like to think of the most important part is to take something that you really want to work on and say, okay, the next quarter, I really want to try to improve my return or I want to try to improve my vowels. So just a small part of my game. And I'll tell you that one of the most interesting comments I got from a great player once I asked Roger Federer once, if you had five minutes a day to practice on one shot, what's the one shot he said he practiced? Return to serve. No. We got everything except the wrong answer. He said, if I had five minutes a day, I'd just practice my forehand. He goes, everybody wants to focus on their weakness. I say don't ever neglect your strength. Work on your strength. That means when you're playing in a match that that's a shot I'm going to be most confident with. And a lot of us, we do obsess over our weakness. We always want to improve our weakness, which is something that's important. But in match play, the most important thing is if you do have a weakness is learning to manage it. Manage yourself and rely on your strength because that's what will carry you in match play. That's kind of how I believe. But practice is crucial. That. Question. Outside of your like commentating commitments, what tennis players like make you turn on the TV? That's a good question. You, you know what? I like to think of I'm, I'm a junkie. I love all parts of tennis. And I get excited by, you know, just seeing, like, I just went on uh, Thursday. I watched the Pepperdine guys play. Um, the, the Pepperdine girls are playing. I'll watch anything. Um, but now I, I look for a lot of times when I look at somebody young, 
are they doing something different? Are they starting to make things and push things that I haven't seen yet that all of a sudden, like watching Alcaraz the last couple of years, the way he's pushing the envelope. I really like seeing, you know, new trends. And one of the things I learned most when I was a kid, my sister would go to this coach when I was 15 years old. He was considered this unbelievably famous coach. He coached um, Don Budge, who won the Grand Slam in the late 30s. He was in a wheelchair drinking Jack Daniels at 7 in the morning. I had to hit um, with my sister. He was all of a sudden taking my sister in 1975, who had a great forehand. And I knew enough that, Dad, this guy is ridiculous. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's trying to get my sister to play like she's in the 30s. Who's the coach? His name was Tom Stowe. Famous coach, but he was trying to get my sister to slice the forehand, take everything on the rise. And like, this doesn't make sense. So me, I can tell you as a coach at 61, whether or not I'm 71, 81, I'm not thinking backwards. I only think forward and what the game is moving. And you always want to stay in that lane moving forward. And way too many of us, I don't have, you know, a one way or my way or the highway, but I do try to keep open minded to new changes because new changes are happening all the time. And I think that's the cool thing about tennis. You mentioned uh, a coach, but you had a coach at Foothill and you went to junior college yep. and uh, Tom Shivington was, you call him Shiv. And when I, when I was running around with you and Andre um, in 1998, you spoke a lot about him. Who was he to you? You know, your wife's biggest fear is you become your dad through osmosis. I'd like to think I became my coach. Um, and I told him the only difference was, coach, I got a chance to coach a couple of guys better than you. He was an incredible person that was fair. And the day that I got to Foothill Junior College, January 2nd, 1980, most people think it's a demotion. When you got to Foothill... You thought you were at Stanford, which was just up the road. He made everybody feel like they were at the right place. And he used to have just a great way, whether or not you were one on the team or 12. And then I stayed with him for the rest of my career. He never blew a match. I blew it. He never gave me bad advice. Um, but he, but you, but how did he make you better? Because you, you, you speak the fact that you improved because of him. You know what he would do, Craig, which is it's, it's such a good thing? He would make little subtle things and say, you, you know, about, you know, maybe we could you swing over on the back end. Maybe we could do it. He might show me a little reel on a serve when my serve wasn't very good. He might show me a guy that had a beautiful serve. But he wouldn't say it like in a derogatory. He just, hey, Brad, come in the shed. Let's look at this reel. What do you think of this guy's serve? And I was like, shit, I wish I had that. And then the next thing you know, you're out working on it and the same with the back and he would just do little things and also too he would take the whole team let's go get pizza and beers you That's know it. yeah and he just he had an easy way about him and and, and you know what no, the, the great thing about him there was absolutely no i in team and everybody on the team he made them feel good we would go and it was like this is it. And they, you know what? You forgot that you weren't at a four-year school. You thought you were at the place you were supposed to be, and it means a lot. And was it, was it he who gave you the blessing to go to Pepperdine, or were you going to turn pro? I wanted to turn pro, for sure. But he why, said, why? Um, you were beating everybody. I felt like in 81, like after I left Foothill, I started to play a little bit. I felt like 
you know what? I think I can make a go. Of this. Was there someone you beat? You were like, oh, I could be, I could be a good player. I could make money. I, when I went on my first trip, like to Asia in '81, before I was going to go to Pepperdine, and I remember, like, I qualified. I went around in Taiwan, and I told the tournament director that. I'm an amateur. I'm not supposed to get any dough, and I got to fill out these forms. And he was looking at me like had no idea what the hell I was talking about. So I took a shower. The guy looked at you. Yeah, I took a sh- I took a shower. I came back, and there was an envelope, and there was like fourteen hundred bucks in cash. And he just in his little English, he didn't speak a lot of. He just come back next year. And so when I came back next year, he did exactly the same thing. Except this time he gave me an envelope for twenty grand because I won the tournament, uh, and it was like no. But I, I felt like. But that, hold on a second. So he, so so Tom, so so the coach gave you the blessing or no, he gave he, you the advice. He told me I wanted to turn pro, and he said, "You know what? You should go for one semester and try to win the NCAs." And so the only reason why that I did go to school because coach said you should go try to win the NCAs. So I did do that. And I came up one match short. I lost the finals, the NCAs, and it was like one of those matches that if you ever got a mulligan in life, you know, I would take it for that one match because I just I I choked. I wanted to win it so bad. I think I wanted to win it for coach, and then I just choked in the final. Six three in the third, Mike Leach. Yeah, I just choked. Jesus, why? Uh, question. Yeah, which uh, surface for you uh, was the most challenging, and why? Did you just read my playbook or something like that? No, it's a great question. I freaking hated clay. When I was young, I never played on clay ever. I mean, we only played on the fastest hard courts in, in NorCal. We never played on clay. So when I turned pro, you could kind of like, when the clay court season was going, you could maybe go to Asia and play on a hard court. You could kind of circumnavigate around it. And... I would play some, a little bit of clay in the States on green clay. The craziest thing is now, if you ask me which court I enjoy playing on most is clay. <laughs> I know how to slide much better. I don't stress about it. I kind of enjoy the whole process of it. But more when I was playing, it was kind of like, how can I cheat around it? But honestly, God, if like the first time that I called the French, it was like the first time that it was like, man, it's nice to be here. You know, and when I was coaching Andre at the clay, it's like, man, it's nice to like not have to play myself. And I like the clay. I appreciate the clay. So I have a much better, we're, me and clay are on a much better friendship. But when I played on tour, we were not on a good speaking term. And how many times did you play the French Open? Maybe eight or nine. Collected check, first round, loss. <laughs> Too many times. Every time? I got to third round once. Oh, you did? Does that count? Who'd you beat? I beat Ben Shelton's dad, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. beat Brian Shelton. And, and, and he wasn't very good on clay. It, it was such a bad match. It was over two days. I think I beat him like 11-9 in the fifth. <laughs> it was like we set the clay back 100 years. Um, Do you know how many terms you played clay? I, I looked it up. I did once make the finals of Stuttgart on red clay. Oh, you did? Yeah. They, you know, like That's you, a great result. They, look at him. I lost to Lendl the final. He just absolutely <laughs> took me to shit. He got mad at me in the second set because he thought I was stalling. I was. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to let you beat me under an hour in this final. Um, I believe I have a 500 record in my career. On clay? On clay. I believe it's around 40-something and 40-something. So you could win matches out there. 
Yeah, well, you know what? Do you know the expression smoke and mirrors? But I, I, here's a question. Listen, listen. You can bluff and but, you can do some things. But we see we see the tennis from Chile and from Argentina, from, from Rio these last few weeks. These guys look like just, they look like just animals. Like it doesn't look like you could ever compete. You know, and like Sampras got no, no, really though. If you watch those, he, if you Sampras watch those, won Rome. It's a di- Sampras won Rome, but and he also got to the semis of Wimbledon. He lost to Kafelnikov. But it's interesting. Like, could you compete? Were you afraid of those South American guys? And you just said, "Listen, I'm just going to stay home." You, you know, the weirdest thing is, I have no reason to this day that why when I would play on on clay, I was a great mover, but I wasn't a good mover on clay. I did the California slide. I slid after I hit the ball. But for some ridiculous <laughs> the California reason... California slide. Yeah, like I would slide after I hit. It's useless. <laughs> Is it true that a lot of the Americans play with the grass court nubs? Andre on tried to do that and he got in trouble. He tried to play with grass court shoes to French and they got super pissed at him. So, there, so, so a lot of the Americans would try to sneak the grass court nubs uh, he got in trouble. onto the clay. So it was like playing with a cleat because Americans couldn't slide. So Andre got in trouble? He got in trouble for ju- doing that to French. What year? Um, I, I think it was like, I was coaching him, I think, 94, and they were like, they weren't having it. It was like he, they were digging up the course. But for some ridiculous reason, I don't know why to this day, that when I would play on clay, I, w- I would think to myself, you know what? Let's do something stupid that I don't do on any other. I start to serve and volley. Yeah. I start to come in. So I would like do some things to try to el- eliminate some of the areas that maybe I wasn't good at. So it is one thing that if I look back on, it's kind of like it's not a bad play that I actually believe in a lot for a lot of players. When you're down a set, I always say don't lose the second set the way you lost the first set. So if, whether or not you were coming in, you know, you stay back, you do the, So it was so not my game to come in, you know, but for some reason on clay, I was like, okay, maybe this is my best shot. So that I would find myself like trying to play like grass court tennis. I have no idea. Sometimes it would work. Most of the time it wouldn't. But I would always have kind of like this built-in thing that, shit, I better do something different even before we even started. Question. Hillary. Hitting flat can be underrated. True. Yeah, why not? Um, you, you know, everything is about how you manage what you do. If, if you play flat, obviously you're probably playing fairly low over the net. The problem is sometimes we're playing low over the net, let's say in the 4-0 or 4-5. If you kind of hit it, but you don't get that much length on it, it's easier for the person that you're playing against to redirect the ball. It's a little harder now because we have more grit on the court. And if you get a little more bounce, it's a little tougher when it's up. Um, if you can keep it really low, obviously you can give the player problems. Um, I learned to play because I have an Eastern forehand grip. I play really flat. Um, but I also can send the ball up in the air. But I think in general, if you do play flat, it's still better to get the ball up, you know, at least around your chin level because you can get a little more length in the court. Now you might have a little more time on your next shot. So I do feel like the lower you play, if you don't get good direction, you could be in trouble on the next shot. Here's an addendum to that question. Oh, good word. What can you tell us about this flat backhand that all these kids are hitting 
where they're just knuckling these like little like that's like a new shot. Is that because of the strings, the technology, the rackets? Curios has it. Cam Nori has it. These guys are just there's no shape on the ball, and they're just absolutely laser beaming their backhands. It's like a flat shot. You, you know what? It's, it's it's the contrast. Th- those couple players you're naming is when you play really flat and you play that little scooter backhand and then you play heavy spin on the forehand, it kind of can get in the head of your opponent that like, Jesus, it, it's almost like playing a lefty and a righty that you, you play really flat on one side, you play spin. And so I, I, more guys are doing it. What is it, though? Can you explain it? Like, yeah. it's, a, it's just the craziest thing. The ball doesn't the ball doesn't spin. Okay, and they don't miss. They don't miss it. The strings are a lot more forgiving now. With the with the poly strings, you can take a bigger swing and you can get a little better result. Like you know, what? I, I, I'm totally fine with any way that you do things, long as you're able to repeat what you're doing. So a lot of pl- club players will have three different swings on their forehand, three different shots. And they can't, under pressure, repeat the same swing. So I think that's the most important thing is being able, if you hit that knuckleball, that you do it all the time. That's the be- that's like, you know, what you're doing under pressure. All right, listen, I want to spice this conversation. Hold on oh, a second. Hold on a second. No, no, no. I want to spice this oh, conversation. You, you gotta eliminate. Uh, I never forget. I was in uh, Munich or uh, Hanover, and I was taking a walk with Chris Woodruff's coach, this little, the little guy. And he said to me, he's like, you know, there comes a time in a, in, a, in a coach's career where he has to put his job on the line and he has to have this sort of come to God conversation with his player. And he has to say, listen, we're not getting it done and I got to either go or you got to do what I tell you. Did that ever? When did that happen with Andre? When did that happen with Roddick? When did that happen with Murray? What can you tell us about some of those, uh, some of those, some of those hard moments in coaching? You know, probably the most interesting time in my coaching career happened in '97 in Munich, Germany. No, I, I, no I, actually, not, were not, we in no, 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 no. Um, we were. At, um, we were in Hanover. No, I'm going to think of the city now. It's Stuttgart. Stuttgart, because yeah. it, it was in Stuttgart here. When I was 24, Brad you were was traveling 34, and I was the stringer. Oh. And that's how we know each other. That's why we're... So, so I have the distinction of being here for this moment. Continue. So Andre just played a horrendous match. No, no. Shocking. He forgot his shoes. Yeah, he forgot his shoes. He had to match. borrow Todd Martin's shoes. Yeah, no, and, and then he went out and got his ass kicked by Todd Martin. No, no, sorry. He, he borrowed Mal Washington's shoes. shoes. Yeah. It was terrible. Yeah, he, he got smoked. It was the worst thing ever. So I were up in his room, and he asked he me. He couldn't hit a ball, by the way. Yeah. He couldn't hit a ball. He asked me if the game has passed him by. And I sat there, and I said, Andre, the game hasn't passed you by. If you put in a three-cent effort, you get a three-cent result. And you're cheating yourself by getting out of shape and not putting in the effort that what you can get out of this game. I said, if you devote yourself to the game, if you get fit and you start over, you go back to Vegas, you train, and you get your you get it together that you want to do things, then I said, it probably will take you 12 months 
to get back to where you want to be to fulfilling all your dreams. You just have to put in 100% effort and the game hasn't passed you by. He kind of looked at me and that was it. Then we went. He went back to Vegas. Well, I got. Hold on. Uh, he went back to sorry, Vegas as the streaker. I got the phone call. He said, "Pack your shit." He said, "Pack your stuff. We're going home." Because we were going to go play the Paris Masters, right? That was it. And you said, "Pack your stuff. We're going home." So, and then he went to play the Challengers. Yeah. So he took about a month off, and it took eighteen months for him to get back to the top. But it was only about you know. It doesn't matter what you do. If you if you try to put in like a, a small effort, it's rare that you get a great result. Well, by the way, he went from one forty five to one. Hang on a second. Think about that for a second. He went one. He went. He went from one to one forty five to one. But you put your. But did you think you were putting your job on the line? So that was ninety eight. He was twenty seven, and it took him till twenty nine to get back. It took him till 29. It took him 18 months to win a major. And then at the end of the summer of 99, when he was 29, he got back to one. And don't forget, he locked down Steffi, too. So love was in the air, you know? Right? Right? You know, when normally somebody would say, oh, okay, you know, it's passed me by. I'm older now. You know, what made him turn this around? I mean, that's, that's uh, Herculean. So, like, for me, the biggest thing is I call it one word, regret. So whether or not, wherever you go to, is, do you have any regrets what you did? Could you change some things? And so like for me, it, it was nothing about the way Andre played. It was just the effort and what he was doing. And I said that maybe five years from now, you'll have some regrets that I could have done X, Y, and Z different. So I felt like at that point it had nothing to do with his game. It was just about how he was going about doing things. You got Roddick to Roddick got to one with he you, did. with you. So Tariq Benhabiles was his coach. He got Tariq got him from like six hundred to thirty, and then Tariq got fired, and then you, you guys won the U.S. Open, and then you got fired. Tell I, us that story. Okay. The, the one thing I believe in coaching, I still believe in, when I start with a player, whoever it is, no matter what level it is, I don't think about anything that's happened before because I don't think it's relevant. I think the only thing that matters in life is what's happening right now and what's moving forward. So I tell a lot of players the, the most important point is the next point. The most important time is what's coming forward. And I, I don't have, you know, I'm not a my way or the highway coach. And the thing that I learned most about coaching Andre and my first foray into coaching, a lot of players, we look through our own eyes and our own lens, what we would do. And all I was always worried about as a player, what the person that I'm playing does the shittiest. I want to find that find their weakness. And it's funny as when I would explain to Andre, you know, we were talking about tactics or whatever, then he'd always stop me and he'd say, you always tell me about the weakness first. Let's start with the strength. And then he would always want to go at the strength first. Oh, Andre and, flipped the script. Yeah. And I was like, why? And he was like, you know what? If I can break somebody's strength down into first game, I might be able to just chop them in down completely. Chop them. So like in my brain, because I didn't have his skill set, it really didn't make sense. But thinking about it, 
through his lens and watching how he could make that happen, it was like genius. genius. It was genius. But for me, that, that strategy and philosophy wouldn't work. And I think that's most important about a coach. I can tell you the biggest difference between Roddick and Andre. Andre, we could talk sometimes three hours the night before about strategy, about tactics. Andre had a photographic memory. With Roddick, he was a lot like Mission Impossible. This message will implode in 10 seconds. And it was, I, it was generational. Yeah, I shit you not. When I wanted him to play a forehand, I would tell him, play the kid's backhand. And then when he was doing what I wanted, he would look up in the stands and tell me I was wrong. See, you know, play, you know, and I had to tell him the opposite because of just how he, if you said red, he said black. That's just how he was wired. So when I really wanted him to play the backhand, I'd tell him to play the forehand, and then he'd tell me I was wrong. What's you guys' relationship now? Really good. Really good. Yeah. Did he ever say, hey, man, I should have kept you? Y Off the record. You know what? We're all, it's between me, you, and all my, all my you know listeners. <laughs> you know what? In life, you always feel like you could always do better. And, and the thing is, what's unusual about tennis, your boss is, you know, younger. And if he wasn't feeling at that moment, it's okay. But I'll say it. He never did better. Is that a bad moment for you? Listen, your whole goal as a coach yeah. is to help the player fulfill their dreams. Yeah. You don't win the match. You don't lose the match. But I can tell you, I'm one of the guys that played that I actually take the coaching losses a lot harder. And because you, you want it so bad for them. Um, and listen, I, I'm not crazy and believe it. We didn't win. You know, I, you know, some coaches will say, you know, he lost. You know, we won. He lost. No, it's like he won. He lost. And, and listen, but I take the losses really hard. And you always want to see if you can help them. And if for that moment, if they weren't feeling it, you know, it hurts to be fired. Well, it's a weird business. thing to win the U.S. Open and then get fired. It happened like in five seconds. Uh, we Was it a money together, thing? No, we were together for like 20 months. He finished the year one in uh, 2020. Uh, two, I say 20 now. 2003. And he finished the year 2004, too. And then I got the hook. Hook. Chuck's happens. Christina Thompson. I have to imagine among the elite coaches out there, everyone sort of has like certain attributes, right? Why did Murray, Roddick, and Andre pick you? See, my daughter Zoe will say simplistically, Dad, if you want to be a great coach again, the first name has got to start with the letter A. <laughs> um, you know what? I, I think that what's most important about coaching is finding the balance of what makes your player tick. Yeah. Andy Murray, I've never seen a guy that, like, no matter what you said or did, he would always say why. He did, His whole thing about everything was, you know, do you have 10,000 pages of evidence of that? And I was like, <laughs> okay, I just, this is what I've seen. That I no, Anytime I would give him advice about everything, he would always be why. And I finally said, what, you think I'm going to give you the wrong advice? Or he'd want to know what, like, statistical analysis I had about everything. And I was like, you know, it's like, I just use my old eyes. But each player can challenge you a different way. And, and you know, that's the beauty of individuals in tennis. Mr. Levin, back there. I'm kind of fascinated by Roddick's, like, 
That I wish I could have back, and one of them was the 2004 Wimbledon final. I felt like Roddick was as good as Federer at that moment. He was a little bit unlucky. There was two different rain delays in that match where Roddick had the momentum, and he was a little bit unlucky. And most importantly, in a match, when you're coaching in that situation, it's if you ever have to tell your player that you have to redline, you have to be, you know, hope that you know all these things, you know, go perfectly to win. You're not doing a great job. And it, it, you keep it simple, and it's not about how great this one player is. It's about execu executing your game plan and trying to do some of the things that you're doing. And then sometimes as a coach, you know if your player's up against it a little bit, you might design a game plan maybe to get a little bit out of your comfort level to try to do things. But if you ever tell your player that, God forbid, that, you know, God, we got a zone, we got to do this, we got to do, you're, you're, you're probably going to have a short day at the office. Um, but I do think it's about trying to, you know, circumnavigate the situation. But to be, to get back to your question, 2003, 2004, I felt like the gap was very small. And if you'd asked me then, I felt like Roddick was every bit as good. Well, that backhand volley lost him the Wimbledon final. That was rough stuff. Uh, Mark. One question uh, right now, contemporary right now, today's players, there's this one player that has a lot of potential. I wish you were his coach, okay? Really, I need to hire you. Uh, I think about that all the time. I, you're, not, uh, you're not out of the... The double fall. Okay, it's a great question. I'm going to give you a good answer. He's asking about... Max, okay, the guy... He's talking about Zverev. No, he's talking about Maxine Cressy. Maxine Cressy. Half French, half American, went to UCLA, serves in Bali's every point, and is 30 in the world. Okay, I'm going to give you a little interesting twist about this guy. So his freshman year at UCLA, he played nine. He slept out on the courts at night on court one. Because he dreamed about playing number one at UCLA. Yeah, he's like a wild dog, this guy. Yeah, so he would sleep on the court... And he would tell coach, I'm going to be there. By the time he was a junior, he ra radically changed his game because he had a bad forehand. He learned to serve and volley on everything. By the time he was a junior, he played one. Last two years, dominant. So fast forward now. He's 30 in the world. He goes two first serves now. He never hits a second serve. So he plays big. He travels. The craziest thing is he travels with two coaches, two French coaches. I just read an article about him. You can look it up. He, he dreams about being number one in the world, being dominant. So he travels with two coaches, yet he wants zero information about who he's playing. He doesn't want to know about the opponent. He only wants to focus on his side of the net. It's most unusual. And I feel like, you know, maybe it kind of takes his nerves out of it a little bit. But I feel like the way he plays, if he knew the strengths and weaknesses, just a little bit of his opponent, some of the tendencies, it would help him. 
but he really believes that he's going to be number one in the world, travels with two coaches, yet doesn't even want to know who he's playing or takes zero information from the other side of the net. It's most unusual. It's very odd. But he can't get any better. I don't, why not? Oh, he can't get better? Why not? You know how he can get better is by taking information that knowing the guy has maybe a weak passing shot off the forehand. If I keep him low, knowing some nuances of your opponent, I think could make a huge difference in his game. Yeah, it's that's crazy. Just, that's just me, but I'm a bit of a mule. Yeah, right there. My question is, what was your most exciting? Was it in coaching or playing in um, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, without a doubt, the greatest moment I had in tennis was walking in the opening ceremony of the 88 Olympics. Because as a kid, there was no tennis. And then, you know, it was the biggest thing when we were a kid. So actually getting to walk in the, uh, uh, the Olympic Village with all the countries and going was an amazing moment. 1988. Seoul, uh, Seoul, Korea. I found that once I went into coaching, you know, everybody always comes back to their playing. I found that, like, because I have such love for my coach, that I probably enjoyed the coaching more. And I like to think of I'm 61. I've been playing the game since I've been three years old. There's never been one moment where I've ever felt like there's something I'd rather be doing. I've never had any burnout. I've never had any, you know, <laughs> moments where, like, a lot of players I know, they got bitter about the game or they didn't make enough money or they didn't do. I love the game. I still go three, four times a week and I hit on the wall. That's the only Zen my kids say I have because I really enjoy that. Um, and I probably get more satisfaction, even if I'm helping a three, five player, maybe get to a four. Oh, trying to help somebody get a little better is really rewarding. But I wish I could help myself and serve better and maybe make Coach Shiv look a little better. But, you know, shucks happens. So, you know, on my show, I do a 10-ball scramble. This is oh. how we're going to end the show. Okay. You ready? Okay, you got something good. Your favorite tournament? The tournament where I get most excited about going to now is the Aussie Open because it starts the year going to Australia. I'm going to get good beer. I'm going to have a good run. I look forward to that most now than any tournament. Favorite city? Ooh, favorite city. Kind of like London is a great city. Favorite player growing up? Oh, easy, Nastasi. Favorite player now? Uh, still love Andre. <laughs> Medical timeouts? Hate him. TUEs, therapeutic use exemptions. What the hell is that? Does tennis have a problem with uh, the kids popping Adderalls? Okay, what happened to, you know, when I was in high school, See, I grew up outside of, uh, of Berkeley, California, and everything was performance dehancing drugs. We had lots all through my duties, like even through the 80s and 90s. Forget about these. It was all performance dehancing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Try to do that and be good. Coaching. Coaching um, is all about love and giving. Approved coaching from those boxes. I like it because all of a sudden, you know what? It, it makes it transparent and it's out front. We should have been doing it long ago. Analytics. Love it. I mean, tennis has been way too late to jump on board. Big entourage or lean and mean? 1,000%. If you can't get into a station wagon, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> Your favorite racket? My favorite racket, without a doubt, is a dinosaur. <laughs> You maybe you even have one. No, I don't have one. 
a Dunlop Max Bly. Hold on a second. You had the funky racket, though. You played with uh, Bosworth. That's not your favorite. Didn't you win a lot of... From 3 to 18. When I was like five years old... Wait, but didn't you make a lot of money with that Bosworth? Yeah, I know, but I played with the Dunlop. I, when I was like five years old, I was playing with a four and five-eighths grip that the racket weighed 400 grams. I mean, that's what we played with. Hell, if, if you didn't like the racket, you just throw in the fireplace, you could at least keep, you know, keep warm at night. Your grip size. My grip size when I played was about a five-eighth. Now I play with about maybe between a three-eighths and a half. Story behind that grip for everyone he played with this crazy towel grip that was like a towel that it was had a terry cloth. Terry cloth. So when I was about 30, there was a, co- a company called, it was called Colorado Sports. They were going out of business. I bought like a thousand grips. So literally when I was about 40, that's when I ran out of them. But I played with them from like about five to 40. And I never switched grips. I still don't on any shot. Health of the WTA. Listen, it's the biggest sport in the world for women. It's the most important sport in the world for women. So listen, growth and everything is important. So listen, I'm a big fan and they're doing okay. But every business could say, I wish we were doing better. Health of the ATP. Uh, That's a good question. Um, Let's keep growing and keep expanding. Davis Cup. The, The most important team competition when I was a kid. I was a Davis Cup ball boy when I was 11 years old for uh, United States versus Romania. And I remember driving home. I had no idea what it really meant was my dad said, he goes, in 12 years, you're going to be playing Davis Cup. And, and, And that's all I actually thought about all through the juniors was playing Davis Cup. And I got to be a practice partner when I was 19 meant more to me. I still have that jacket when I was a practice partner when I was 19. And hopefully, Davis Cup still has a place in the calendar like it deserves. Because I think it's the most important team competition, maybe in all of sports. Are you going to coach a player? Are we going to see you out on the road 35, 40 weeks in the next seven months? Uh, good question. I say this. Never say never. Um, I don't know if I want to coach 35 to 40 weeks, but I definitely, the right player would do it because the craziness of me, I like waking up at 2.30, 3 a.m. because I'm thinking about shit. Sleep is overrated. I don't need much sleep to begin with. And I like waking up super early. I like if I'm looking at YouTube, I'm looking at matches, thinking about scouting or whatever. So that's the part. Do you wake up at 2.30? 2.33. No. Yeah. If and what time do you go to bed? If I go to sleep 10, 10.30, sleep's overrated. And will you just pop espressos all day? I just drink about, you know, maybe four espressos in the morning and then, you know, that's it. <laughs> Alicia, Alicia Parks. Um. Love to see somebody that like wasn't on people's radar a few years ago doing what she's doing. Now she's 50 in the world. Now, now she's on people's radar. Now can she make that next leap? That's the beauty of tennis, the beauty of sports. She wasn't on the radar. Now people know what she's doing. Can she get better from here? Do you know her? Do I know her? I don't know her. I know her game. Amanda Anisimova. Uh, Anisimova, a lot of talent, but with a lot of talent, is a lot of expectation. Is there any truth to the rumor that you have been in negotiations with her? 
No. I mean, you know, the only thing my daughter would say is she's got great initials, double A, like Andre. Yeah, it's double A is great initials. But no, I have never had a conversation with her in my life. Corey Goff, Coco Goff. I think that, you know, it world of talent and a great opportunity the next two, three years to, I think, to become, you know, the next great American player. But with that, there's no just given that's going to happen. Naomi Osaka. Um, listen, hopefully we've seen some players after a baby come back. I think she has the skill set to be able to come back. It's just finding that love and balance for being out there. I think if she can find all of that, I think she could easily get back in the top three in the world and win majors again. I'm going to give the last question to... It like, better be good. You guys are the last question of the whole thing. You, you know what? I would have told you like a few months ago, it's Taylor Fritz. Okay. But all of a sudden, Tommy Paul, a little bit like Alicia Parks, is all of a sudden making a rapid rise. And he actually, eight years ago, was this great junior. Took a little step back, a little detour. All of a sudden, he's coming up. But I think the most exciting thing about the American group, it's a big group. And I actually think the most important part for the 25-year-olds, which is Tiafo, Fritz, Paul, Opelka, Cressy, it's the 21, 22-year-olds. It's, it's Nakajima, it's Brooksby, it's Shelton, it's the younger guys. Now, all of a sudden, that like these guys can't be content that they're going to be the, maybe the next American. So think, uh, I think that could push them to a better height as well. Have you heard any um, interesting information about my information, which is that Acapulco becomes a, a thousand? Yeah. I'm no genius. Yeah. But Cincinnati just got sold for $300 million. Uh, I believe Madrid got sold for $500 million. You just don't up and get a thousand with, unless you buy it from somebody else. So the only one that hasn't been on the last couple of years is China. Is China selling it? So they're going to swap China. I, I mean, China's not, they ain't swapping China unless they're paying for it. So listen, I'd be fine with it. But last I checked, they cost a lot of dough. It's much closer for, you know, Americans to go to Mexico. And I've never talked to Anna Samova in my life. <laughs> never. Huge thank you to Brad Gilbert. Thank you to the Malibu Racquet Club and my 15 players that attended the awesome event. Huge thank you to Deodora. See them at Deodora.com. And be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.